When I was a kid, I always wanted to be a hero. I had this best friend, Josh. We had 1,200 acres behind our two houses. It was like forestry land. Pope and Talbot, I think, was the company. Anyway, it was probably just waiting to be logged, but it was there my whole upbringing. And so growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, as I did, the big news, the big narrative was the Cold War, right? So we would play, the Soviets are coming, and we would be back in the woods. And, and of course, what we would pretend is that we were elite, you know, army guys, or actually we're Navy SEALs, army Sorry if you were in the army. Uh, but anyway, so we would pretend that the Soviets were coming. Every day after school, we would save our neighborhood. Of course, no one else knew that they were there, and we would set booby traps, and our air rifles were actually high-powered, super special rifles with, like, nuclear bullets that would explode and blow up tanks and stuff. That was one of the things we would pretend. Um, if we weren't playing war games, which, by the way, I probably watched that movie one too many times when I was a kid, but we were also uh, honing our skills and, and the ways of the Force as we were, of course, young Jedis on the side. Uh, that was part of our war game experience. But anyway, we're always practicing to be special. And in any of these make-believe scenarios of being heroes, and trust me, there were lots of make-believe scenarios we would play, our heroics were always based on being special, whether possessing special knowledge or special skills or special powers. We were heroes in our own minds in these make-believe games we would play because we were something special that normal people like you were not, right? But biblical heroes are different. Eugene Peterson, a writer and lecturer, uh, goes so far as to say there are no heroes in the Bible except God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Think on it for a moment. Why is Moses one of the most well-known figures in all the Bible. Some might even say Moses is a hero. Well, it wasn't because he was incredibly intelligent. He didn't have special knowledge. In fact, when he tried to kill a guy, it was actually a rash move. He had to flee the land of his upbringing uh, for his life and spent 40 years out in the desert by, uh, in, in a pagan family. Moses wasn't a great leader because he was particularly eloquent of speech, right? I mean, he had to have his brother, his, his brother had to help him out in his speeches. So it wasn't that. And Moses wasn't particularly charismatic or magnetic in personality. Early in his life, when he tried to advocate for his people, they rejected his leadership and said, who on earth do you think you are? The only way that Moses initially earned the respect of the Israelites is through the signs that God gave him, not any powers he had of himself. And these signs were like turning a staff into the snake and turning the water to blood and, you know, the leprosy hand trick. We've talked about that before. Like, what a weird trick. But anyway, that's his deal. And in the end, do you know how Moses rescued God's people? (laughs) He didn't. Pharaoh didn't even take him seriously. And after he went to Pharaoh the first time, the Israelites said, curse you, Moses, and the day you ever came here, because now Pharaoh's making life harder on us. The reality is that the only reason the Israelites were let go from Egypt is by the mighty hand of God. It's Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, who shows mastery over all of the gods of Egypt over nature, sending all of those plagues and being able to manipulate nature. It is God, the creator of heaven and earth, not Moses, who had mastery even over the mind and heart of Pharaoh, who many in that world would have seen as the most powerful man on the face of the earth. In fact, 
a god of sorts of, him, uh, of himself. God is the hero of the story of Moses. So, how is Moses so well known? It was not his special skill or his special strength or magic. He wasn't a mutant with superpowers. He wasn't a Jedi Knight, that's for sure. He wasn't a freak athlete, even. He wasn't even a master of diplomacy. What was it about Moses that makes him so famous? If God is the hero, if God does all the saving, one thing, Moses was obedient. Moses was obedient. Moses would have died in obscurity. We would never be talking about him in church. He wouldn't be in the Bible had he not been obedient to God and the call of God on his life. My goodness, how many times did Moses even try and get out of that call? Several times he tells God no for this reason or that reason. It is truly by the grace of God that Moses is part of God's story at all. God is the initiator and the hero of the whole thing. And yet, don't miss this, Moses still mattered. Moses mattered. Moses was God's vessel of grace, his instrument of deliverance, and his voice of justice. Because, and only because, he obeyed. Obedience is God's doorway to life. It's the arena through which we move from spectators watching the story of God to participants in the story of God. And this is particularly important right now as we are less than two weeks away from Christmas. Will Christmas, Jesus' bursting forth in the flesh, simply come and go yet again, or will we be poised, ready to receive him afresh? little recap. So on the first Sunday of Advent, we looked at the story of Zacharias and the practice of silence. We saw the importance of making time, taking time to be still before the, Lord's, before the Lord and his word, listening for his voice. Last week, second week of Advent, rooted in the story of Mary, we witnessed her practice of contemplation, taking the word of God and life circumstances and the political realities, and culture, and all the things going on in life, and throwing them together, contemplating them alongside Scripture, all with the purpose of gaining God's perspective on what's really going on. Silence creates space for contemplation. Contemplation, then, uh, leads us to understanding of what God has done, and what God wants done. Silence and contemplation lead to intimacy with God and knowing his heart and knowing his will for the world. But it's only through obedience to God. It's only through obedience to God that his, and his revelation that we become participants in his glorious story. All right, so silence and contemplation lead us to, oh, this is what God's up to. Obedience helps us to enter in. It doesn't do us a lot of good if we know stuff about God, or even know what his will is, if we don't actually then obey it. The typical text for Advent obedience, of course, is Mary. When the angel comes to her, she is the textbook case of humble obedience. Her reply, of course, is, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Perfect. What a response. 
But I want to turn our attention instead to another example of obedience, all right? This person is not as flashy as Mary. In fact, in all the scriptures, this person never speaks. We know nothing of his own voice except his actions. And that man, of course, is Joseph. Now, would you stand with me, please, as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son And he called his name Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We, Lord, confess that this story, um, maybe of all stories, this one and the Luke stories are so familiar. They're the stories that many of us have heard since we were children. Forgive us if they've lost their, their luster, their power, the Lord, the the shock and awe that should come from a God who comes and dwells among us. Lord, help us to receive afresh what it is you want to say to us tonight. Holy Spirit, thank you for your ministry and making the word of God come alive for us today. May your will be done in us. Amen. Please be seated. Our story begins, as most biblical stories do, talking about relationship or set in a relationship. In the first part of Matthew's gospel, right before the stuff we read just now, you get this long genealogy, verses 1 through 14. And in that genealogy, we, set, we see the setting of relationship, that, that Joseph is tied relationally to King David through whom the Messiah was supposed to come. More acutely in his own lifetime, uh, Joseph is in deep relationship with a young maiden named Mary. I don't know. We think about them, I don't know, as statues or some story in a book. But I mean, think about if you've ever been in love or maybe if you're married, that, that courting, that your engagement and just that. I mean, there's a deep relationship there. He's head over heels with this young girl. They're going to get married. So this is the relational setting that we are set in right now. Now, in first century Judaism, most marriages were arranged. A man from his early 20s to early 30s would be arranged to marry a girl from the village. So it's not like he'd, he probably knew who she was, but she's younger than him, between 12 and a half and, and a late teenager. And when two people were betrothed together, 
uh, the man would sometimes have to pay a modest bride price. So Joseph and his family would pay Mary's family a bride price. But the bride's family would have to pay a quite expensive dowry, depending on their social status and all that. And what does this bride price and dowry do is they're kind of like early prenups, okay? Uh, If, for example, um, you're betrothed to each other and your families have exchanged these gifts, and let's say Joseph passed away, Mary would then be a widow, technically, and she'd be able to live off of that dowry and that bride price. If one of them committed a crime against the other, say infidelity, and the marriage was dissolved, they could live off of that dowry or bride price. It was kind of an insurance policy. If the woman committed adultery, however, the whole dowry would go to the man. She would lose everything. Now, most important for us, I think, in the 21st century to wrap our heads around is that betrothal, it's like engagement, only it's legally binding. Legally binding. Generally, betrothal would last one year, during which time a woman would remain living at her family's house, and the man, he could be with his family, or maybe he lived on his own at that time, unlikely. Uh, But they would remain with their families, they would remain celibate, they would see each other only with other relatives. They didn't Dates were communal, so they didn't have time to fool around by themselves, okay? And at the end of that year of betrothal, as the man is saving up money and everything's getting ready, they would have a huge wedding celebration, often lasting a week long, at which time they would consummate the relationship, okay? But even during that year, they are legally bound, uh, so much to the the fact that um, they're referred to as husband and wife. If a betrothed man died during that year, even before they consummated the wedding, the woman would be considered a widow. If a woman committed adultery during that year, even before they had come together, she she could be, according to law, executed just as if they had been uh, living together already as a married couple. So Mary and Joseph are betrothed to one another. They undoubtedly have regular plans for a regular life, probably not too far off, Uh, from you and I. I mean, maybe not house picket fence kind of dreams, uh, but they had had plans of what life was going to look like. And then it comes to light that Mary is expecting a child. Mary is pregnant. Now, remember, you and I have the luxury of knowing, oh yeah, but Mary's pregnant with Jesus, and it's going to be okay, right? But, But let's just try and hold off what we think we know right now. And think about this from Joseph's perspective. Joseph is a regular guy, a carpenter, who knows that his wife-to-be is pregnant, and he didn't do it. Sit with that for a moment. And ladies, I don't know what could help you if you could wrap your mind, put yourself in his shoes, or if, anyway, just try and deal with that for a minute. From Joseph's perspective, it's obvious Mary's with child. It's also obvious that Joseph's like, I never did the thing that can help make that happen. That's not my child. The pain, all of those hopes that one might have um, shattered. Life would not be the way he thought it would be ever again. That dream is now gone. It's just not going to be how he thought it would be. And I wonder, you know, for (laughs) Christine, we tell you the time that Christine put Corey up to fooling me one time. Uh, She, yeah, she... I faked, I had this knee surgery, and I faked that I had re-injured my knee, and 
oh, Corey was so mad. And so um, they came up with this plot to uh, pretend Corey was pregnant. So they had the, the stick. And as soon as she showed me this positive sign, which she had some coworker pee on it who was pregnant, um, I immediately, like within probably less than a minute, had already thought, okay, we're going to have to knock that wall down and remodel here, and we need this car. You know, I just had like this whole chain of events changed for me, and I wonder what Joseph is thinking, like, oh, uh, I better call, you know, the baker and tell him that the, the wedding's off, you know, <laughs> like all of this stuff. The pressure, the, the, the sorrow, the agony, the feeling of betrayal, all of that coming to light. And I, I suspect, I mean, I'm just imagining here, but I'm suspecting that Mary may have tried to tell Joseph, yeah, but the Holy Spirit did it, an angel told me. And, and you got to think in the context that for 400 years prior to this, God had not spoken to Israel through a prophet. Malachi was the last one 400 years prior. And now this village teenage girl who's expecting with child is telling Joseph that, oh yeah, well, God sent an angel to me. And it just so happened that the Holy Spirit did this. In first century Judaism, righteousness, Joseph is described as righteous. Righteousness meant abiding by the law, and fitting in with society. That's very different than our world where, you know, I look out today and we all have different prints on and, and colors, and I can't even tell what colors they are, but, you know, we all look different. That's normal. We all uh, drive different kinds of cars and have different kinds of work, and we do different things than our parents did. Many of us probably don't even live in the same town we were born. We're just, this is our culture. But in this culture, it was abnormal to not live near your parents. It was abnormal to have a job that was different than your, your mom or your dad. It was abnormal and unrighteous to be different. Your identity was found in the collective. So Joseph, being a righteous man, sought a divorce. That was the law for adultery. There really wasn't any other way to look at it from Joseph's perspective. But there were two ways to go about a divorce in the first century in Judaism. First, you could do what most people probably would have done. You could take Mary to court where she and her family would be publicly humiliated. By taking Mary to court, Joseph would then be free to marry another woman. He would be clean of any of the shame that might be associated with his connection to this pregnancy out of wedlock. And he would have been able to keep Mary's dowry. If you were betrayed and angry, that might be a very tempting way to go. Now, although the Romans did not allow Jews to carry out the death penalty in this time, which was the punishment for adultery, Mary would have to have had to endure a humiliating period. What would happen is the village women would drag her to the gate of the city. That's where all the business took place. They would strip her of her jewelry, anything that would make her uh, have honor, and they would tear her clothing, uh, exposing little bits of maybe um, uh, her chest, which any nudity, any showing ankle even was uncouth in those periods. And then something even worse. Older women in the village would take younger women, their relatives, and they would purposefully walk by a person like Mary. And they would say, that's why you follow the rules. That's why you don't do what she did. That first avenue for divorce, the one where Joseph goes publicly to the court, keeps the dowry, keeps his honor on his family, 
that would end up with Mary being shamed as an object lesson. Joseph's divorce in that way would have been legally righteous. But Joseph shows remarkable compassion and reminds us that righteousness is not just about personal piety or protecting your name or protecting your family. It's also about how we treat others. Joseph chose to protect Mary from this extreme shaming of public divorce and chose instead to send her away quietly, which is the second way you could pull off a divorce in that time period. It was called a, called a Hillelite, any cause divorce. It's kind of a catch-all category. Basically, he and Mary would go before a judge privately and absolve the marriage. Joseph would lose the dowry. He would live with the shame of not publicly declaring his rage at Mary. Okay? Do you realize that in Roman culture, if this happened in a household, if there was an adultery, and you didn't get a divorce, if you didn't get a court, you would be so looked down upon because Romans would say, you are too weak, you are bringing shame upon your own house, you'd be stigmatized. Verse 20 tells us that Joseph considered his course of action. This is a powerful word, word. It, me- it means to meditate on or to think deeply, and in this sense, even to think prayerfully about what he's about to do. And I think here that Joseph is practicing these two practices we've talked about previously. I think he's silently contemplating Uh, this next move. And in the midst of his listening for God about what to do with Mary, about how to take care of this situation, he has a dream. He has a dream, and I don't know if it's a daydream, but if you're like me, in your quiet time of silence and contemplation, sometimes I tend to doze off. Okay, so, so Joseph could have been really asleep, or he could have had a daydream, but regardless, the text says that in a dream... An angel comes to Joseph. Sleep, by the way, is no match for the word of God. It's going to come no matter what. This angel says some unbelievable things. Uh, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The child she's carrying, by the way, is conceived of the Holy Spirit. You will call his name Jesus, which in Hebrew is Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. This son of yours will save his people from their sins. The narrator fills in some gaps for the reader, but in the flow of the story, the next narrative scene reads, and Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. It is so easy to skip over this little section. I mean, let's face it, right after that verse, we get chapter two in the Magi, and they're so interesting and exotic, and they bring stuff, and that's a lot more fun to talk about. But let's think for a moment of what this obedience would have cost Joseph. First of all, following God in this instance meant that Joseph had to go against the cultural norms of his day. Not divorcing Mary was absolutely countercultural. It was even against his religious culture. Joseph would have had rabbis counseling him, son, you need to divorce this woman, and here are two ways you could do that. Not divorcing Mary would leave a stain on his family name. 
It would have brought shame on the synagogue in which Joseph worshipped. So those people want Joseph to do the right thing too. They don't want to be known as the synagogue with the guy who had the, the baby out of wedlock, okay? Bring shame in the social situation. It would have brought shame to Joseph's siblings and his parents and his community. There can be a social and cultural cost to being obedient to God. Second, Joseph obeys God at great personal cost. That was the social cost. In communal societies, not towing the line, not fitting in, not conforming was one of the worst things you could do. If the synagogue or the village or family was shamed, you know what? They're going to make sure that you, the cause of that shame, feel it the most. And there's ways you can do that. I mean, at a minimum, just the the piercing glares that people can give, the evil eye. It actually comes from the ancient Near Eastern culture, that term, evil eye. It's the stink eye. People are really good at it. He could get the silent treatment from merchants. He could have been verbally abused. He would have borne a stigma on his name for the rest of his life, an invisible mark of disapproval by his own community. I wonder, as I was thinking about this, what are some of the costs that you've incurred from being obedient to Jesus in your life? And are you reluctant to obey Jesus because of social pressure or personal cost? One of the things to just take home with you is to consider the question, what actually is holding you back from following Christ more fully? What, what is it that's holding you back from following Christ more fully? And if you think you're following Christ very fully, you're probably fine doing what you're doing. I mean, the Holy Spirit will let you know if, if there's a way he wants you to, to take it to a new level. Just enjoy the plateau you're on for now because it'll change. <laughs> but what is it that, that holds you back from really going all the way? Joseph's obedience cost him personal and social shame. But third, it demanded something of him, and that demand was to embrace an outsider. Sure, Mary said that the son in her womb was God's. Sure, the angel told Joseph the same thing, and even if we give Joseph the benefit of the doubt and believe that he believed the angel, would anyone else really believe that their son was God's son? And the boy, being God's, still meant that he was not Joseph's. And yet, obedience to God's way means opening up to others. It means a redefinition of what family is. Opening up to God, obeying Him, means a redefinition in what family is. Joseph had not, not only embraced Mary, at least he wanted her before any of this happened. At least he had a relationship with her. But he also adopted this son who he had no say in in the first place. What graciousness, what obedience. As followers of Jesus, obedience means opening the family boundaries to other people. Many have literally, in this congregation, literally adopted people into their family. And Elizabeth and Michael are in the process of opening their lives up to fostering. 
I can think of a few better examples of being open to out, uh, you know, people outside the, the biological family to adoption and fostering this type of, uh, of embracing. But for the rest of us, this type of, uh, type of obedience involves adoption of others into our lives. And, you know, the minimum there is if you are a follower of Jesus, it means seeing the person to your right and to your left in this room right here, other followers of Jesus, as brothers and sisters. All of them. <laughs> Not just the ones you like. Even the personality that rubs you the wrong way. Even that person who has a different political outlook than you do. They might be a little too conservative for you, or they might be a little too liberal for you. They listen to that talk show host. They might even be Portland Timbers fans. I don't, that's pushing it. I mean, that is a lot of grace. But it, it at least involves our brothers and sisters in Christ. It involves the person who dominates the conversation every time or is a little socially awkward and difficult to carry a conversation with. It includes them. It includes an openness to these relationships. Like Joseph, we are called to adopt one another because in reality, you and I are adopted ourselves into the family of God. And, and that's a key point. God's call for obedience on the life of Joseph is not the first thing he says to Joseph. God's first move with Joseph and with Moses and with us is grace. His first move is grace. Before God ever commands you to do anything, he always initiates with grace. For Joseph, it is the angel coming to him and, and affirming, validating Joseph, son of David, recognizing who he is. Then the command of grace, don't be afraid. And he's not to simply receive Mary for any reason, not just because I said so. Son, Joseph, son of David, that woman that you are betrothed to, she's with child, and it is the Savior of the world. I know it's going to wreck your mind right now. It might even wreck your plans, but think about this. The boy you get to adopt is the Savior of the world. Joseph could have made this stuff up. Obedience costs, but its payout is so amazing. Obedience is always for the good. At Advent, we prepare by considering our lives. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. A couple years back, we looked at John for Advent. What are the things, what are the ways he prepares people? He stands out there like a wild man saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you've got two coats... Give one to the poor. Okay? If you're a soldier, he doesn't say leave your position as a soldier. He says, do your work with righteousness. Don't force people into, into service. Don't take more than, you, than is your daily wage. Be a righteous person. Prepare yourself. The Lord is coming. Repent. Change the way you're living. Are we living obediently? It struck me as I was preparing for this uh, that probably what most of us need to not hear right now is, okay, so here are um, the 10 ways that we need to be obedient as the church. Or the three, uh, the three things you need to change when you leave here. In fact, I was telling the prayer group upstairs before service, we're getting into 1 Corinthians next month. 
Paul's got plenty to say about, <laughs> about that kind of stuff. I, I, I don't, I'm not convinced that most of us need the list. If you want to know what to do, read the Sermon on the Mount. Good, good luck with that. That'll give you a lifetime of stuff to strive for. And I'm not being facetious, really do that. I mean, that is, if anyone succeeds in that 100%, we're not worthy. But I, I'm convinced that what we need to think about as people who are striving to follow Jesus, and I, I, even if you haven't made that commitment yet, you're here for a reason. You're here, you're interested, you want to hear the word of God. I think what we need to do is check our motive. Um, a lot of us are following Jesus, are trying to be obedient for the wrong reasons. And they might even be a little bit right, but they're just not 100% right. So let me, let me talk about some ways that we... Um, why we should be obedient. First of all, some people think the primary reason to obey Jesus is because it's morally wise. This is the turn or burn mentality. Listen, Jesus is coming back. If you, you want to obey him so that you're on his side, because it's going to be bad if you're not on his side. And you know, there's a principle there. That's, that's true. But I want to say this, that that is not the main way that the gospel is proclaimed by Jesus or Paul or anyone else. It's not primarily turn or burn, or this is the, the best choice. The second thing, some people think that obedience to Jesus is the best investment. It's a great deal. Jesus told the parable about the guy who found the treasure in the land, covered it back up, sold everything he had so he could buy the land, and with it, the treasure also. That is so true. It is a great investment. There's no better investment than investing your life in the kingdom of God. But it's not the main reason to trust and obey. I think, and I think the scripture backs me in this, that love is the primary motivator for Jesus. And this is love, that Jesus first loved us and gave his life for us. Jesus himself was obedient at great social cost. By obeying God the Father, Jesus crossed social barriers and cultural taboos. He ministered to the sick and the poor and the wicked. He ministered to Jews and Gentiles, to men and women, even women of questionable moral character. This cost Jesus. The people who we would want to impress in the world, the leaders and all of those kind of important people, they didn't like him very much. Jesus was obedient at extreme personal cost. He did not use his power to gain political power or fame. His obedience cost him, uh, sent him down this road that went through the land of beatings and ridicule and execution on a cross. And he did all of this, not because it was the morally wise thing to do, he did this not because it was the best exchange cost-benefit analysis. He did this because he loves us and he wanted to save us from our sin. To do all that, to one day be God and the next day still be God but be born in the flesh in a manger to a poor family in a stable. To deny using the power and privilege of divinity to die the horrible death of crucifixion. Wow, you and me, we must, be, we must be special people to deserve all that, right? We must be really good. We must be worth that kind of investment. Actually, sorry to burst your bubble. It really had nothing to do 
with your performance or mine. Had nothing to do with how good you are or how good I am. It was love for us that caused God to take the initiative. That while we were yet sinners, while the world was unwilling and unprepared, busy with its controlling speech, not silent before God, while the world was distracted with the cares of greed and survival and making a name for ourselves, not contemplating the scriptures and the times, it was while each one was going his or her own way, looking out for themselves, not looking out in love for one another, and therefore not obedient to God. It was to a world in rebellion that Jesus came to reconcile and to heal and to save. What then does it mean to trust and obey? Simply this, to receive the one the Father has sent. It's from John 6. What must we do, Jesus, to work the works of God? To which Jesus replies, Receive the one the Father has sent. To trust him, to invite him in, to rely on him, to love him, and then, as we do that, to let that love fill us and change us, and you won't be able to help this part, it will begin to spill out and it will get messy, and you'll splash some kindness of Christ on someone, and it will change your family, and it will change the places you work, and the places you shop, and the places you play. It will change our worship experience. It will continue to grow as we are filled more and more with Christ. I'm I'm preaching here, Jeannie, because I'm thinking you could be doing this right now. This is you. Just receiving a fresh Christ in his love is transformative. It's not about what you have to now go do these 10 things. It's not about you trying harder. It's about receiving the one who loves you so much and letting it change you and letting it flow out of you. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for giving me this word this week um, because I needed it for myself. I still do. I still confess I have trouble believing what it is I'm saying. I want so desperately um, for me and my brothers and sisters here to believe that it's not really about performance, that it's not really about doing the right things all the time. I so desperately want you to come and dwell in me more fully, more beautifully. I so desperately want to see more of the fruit of the Spirit born in me and in my brothers and sisters and in my children and all of our kids. Lord, help us, I pray for your help to take us to the next level, wherever we were at when we came in today. Holy Spirit, please take us to the next level of trust and obedience. Help us to take you at your word. That receiving you, that trusting in you will pay dividends, that you will fill us with love for you and for those around us. Thank you for the promise of your word. Help us to stand on it now.
Amen.